This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Was the 1980s the best decade for breaking? Award winners don't push brooms. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name is Will, and joining me, as always, is my friend and my co-host, Ray. How you doing, Ray? Oh, we're doing okay. How you doing over there? I'm doing well. Still alive and disease-free. I'm drug and disease-free. Sounds wonderful. (laughs) That's going to become the new, like, badge of honor in our society, you know? I mean, usually you see it on these, like, singles sites or dating sites, you know, touting your uh, fantastic qualities. Hey, look, you might, I might be a total jerk, but I don't do drugs and I don't have a disease. Now it's going to be Mm COVID-free. Anyway, hey, today we're going to be talking about break-in. And I'm referring to the dance style that was popularized, maybe to a terrible extent, and we'll talk about that, in the 1980s. And then a little bit later, we'll be talking with someone who starred in the movie Break-In, Mr. Michael Chambers, who played Turbo himself. But before all that, let's get caught up on 80s news. I feel like I should have checked in with you first, see if you're okay. I'm fine. <laughs> you sound aggravated. <laughs> oh, no comment. It's just a low nah. level of aggravation now, like all the time. Yeah. I'm trying to think of an 80s reference uh, for when I go out shopping to the grocery store, because I always, I always think of a 90s reference. I always feel like Bruce Willis at the beginning of 12 Monkeys, when he's go out going out and exploring for new life or for life, he's got like this you know, neo-futuristic sort of, you know, steampunky hazmat suit on. Mm-hmm. And then like he's walking around the city that looks like it was devastated by some kind of Holocaust. And there's like a panther or something jumps on a car and he's like, oh crap, <laughs> there's now panthers in the city. And I think that's how I feel like when I go to Giant Eagle. Like I don't know what I'm going to see there. If I saw, you know, a wild animal running around, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, uh, the stores are a lot less crowded now. So that's a bonus. And uh, they've put in red lines on the floor so you don't get too close to each other because people don't understand what six feet is, uh, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was at the store just the other day and a woman just came right up to me, like sidled right up to me like while I was trying to find a tomato and just started talking to me. And I just leapt back like three feet at least. <laughs> I was like, I'll, and I just was like, mm-hmm. And then I just walked away. I'm like, I'll get a tomato later. Or not at all. Yeah, I'm not touching any of those tomatoes with that close talker shopping there. All right, that's enough of checking up on Ray, <laughs> the new segment. All right, so hey, in 80s news, there's a few stories that I wanted to touch base with you. First of all, speaking of a global pandemic, Lionel Richie has said just a few days ago that he thinks it's time to update We Are the World. Hmm, not a fan of updating that. Were you a fan of the original? It's all right. I like the concept better than the actual song. Yeah. Well, he said he's been himself has been reluctant to uh, update it. In in fact, they did an updated version for Hurricane Katrina some 10 or so years ago, and I don't believe he was involved. But 2020 is actually the 35th anniversary of the original song. So he made it clear that originally he didn't want to do much connection with the song because he you know feels like the current environment is not a time to try to sell the anniversary of the song. But that what's going on in the world, you know, now more than ever, he says, uh, quote, what happened in China and Europe, it came here. So if we don't save our brothers there, it's going to come home. Well, it's, it's home now, Lionel. Um, so he thinks that maybe this is another opportunity to come together and say, hey, we're all in this together. Would it be called We're Still the World? <laughs> we're even more the world. 
we are the global pandemic. You know, how do you, <laughs> what, this is going to be one of those things, what rhymes with pandemic? Like epidemic, I guess mm, would be a possibility. Sick, at risk. <laughs> <laughs> now, Lionel Richie wrote the original song with Michael Jackson, and this is going to tie, that ties interestingly, uh, both Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, and the fact that the two of them collaborated on We Are The World, ties interestingly to our guest, Michael Chambers, and we'll talk to him later, because he one of the things he did, famously, was tour with Lionel Richie during the 1980s, where he would actually be dancing on stage. And we want to ask him about uh, his connection to Michael Jackson, because if the rumors are true, he taught, or he was one of the few people that was involved in te- teaching Michael Jackson some of his dance moves, but we can check with him later about that. Here's another bit of news related to the 80s. Ryan Reynolds, and this comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter, Ryan Reynolds is in talks to tackle a live-action adaptation of the 1980s video game Dragon's Lair. Yeah, I'm looking forward to him being, uh, what is his name, Dirk the Daring? Yes, that's how I remember it, yeah. I thought you were going to say Dirk the Diggler at first. No, I had to think about it for a second, though. Um, Yeah, I think he'll be a a great uh, person to do that role. I think it'll be awesome. He's got that perfect personality for those type of roles. Yeah, and he's got that sort of, you know, uh, you know, Dirk sort of had that exaggerated chin, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Don Bluth did the animation, so it was that very Don Bluth-style animation. But he's got a good look for it. He's got a good, you know, jowl. He's got that cut, uh, his uh, chin, jawline. Yeah. Um, did you uh, play Dragon's Lair in the arcade? I did, but I never made it off the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> I got into the castle. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen anybody do it. It was one of those ones that was just a cash grab for the creators where they just forced you to put uh, quarter after, was it even, probably wasn't even just one quarter, right? It was probably 50 cents at least. Probably. But uh, I've since went on YouTube and watched people finish the game. So I, I now know what goes on inside the game once you actually get over that first bridge. Right. Yeah. I saw they have a version where it's just, it plays through like a movie, like a short. Yeah. It actually winds up being a lot shorter than it seemed because it would take so long to get through each of those challenges. But as, as you, if you recall, this is the second 80s property that we're aware of that Ryan Reynolds is developing because last time we talked about, uh, he's also working on Clue. Uh, so Ryan Reynolds is set to, is in negotiations to star and produce this uh, video, uh, video game adaptation. Yeah, it, it appears he's going to make six or seven movies a year now. He's just rolling in the cash at the moment. So Hey, I'm okay with that. He has that movie coming out. Uh, speaking of video games, he has a movie coming out, or it was scheduled to come out this July. Hopefully it's it's still going to be on track because we'll be out of the bunker by then. Uh, I don't know if you saw the trailer for it, Free Guy. Yeah, that looks awesome. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, obviously it's based on contemporary video games, this idea that it's a first-person sort of, uh, what do they call it, Mul- massive multiplayer online worlds where you're interacting with other real people, but... Um, much like the Truman Show, he becomes self-aware. So, yeah, it looks really cool. And then the last thing I wanted to bring to your attention is uh, an article that I came across in papercitymag.com, uh, an article written by Courtney Dabney, and the title of it is, It Took a Global Pandemic, But Generation X Is Finally Getting Love. And you should uh, check out this article if you haven't had a chance but any uh, 80s kid will appreciate the content of this article because it goes on to say, unlike any other generation prior and certainly since, our generation is prepared for the type of uh, circumstances that we're in now. And says that uh, for the longest time, the roughly 65 million of uh, us, that is Generation Xers, uh, are finally getting uh, you know, recognized for our, I guess, particular experience and skills. Yeah, we have a we have a particular skill set when it comes to sitting alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. She goes on to talk about that. She goes on to say, uh, quote, generation extras are generally pragmatic, independent, 
and resourceful. We don't require a lot of hand-holding, end quote. Um, she goes on to talk about a number of different ways that we're better suited than other folks, including the great amount of patience we have, because whether it was waiting in line uh, for gas during the 1970s or waiting in line to see you know, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back tickets, we have the ability to be patient. Uh, it doesn't require, require much to entertain us because, uh, for example, as she says, uh, a pet rock was literally a rock and the, the first video games we played were, you know, dots on screens. Yeah, we, uh, we have the ability to just sit around and do nothing for hours on end. It's pretty amazing. And she gives plenty of other examples, too. You should check out the article if you haven't in papercitymag.com. I continue to marvel at folks that are just, you know, and I guess it's mostly younger folks, including my own kids here, you know, who are within just a couple of hours of being awake, you know, my, my youngest daughter especially will come to me and say, I'm bored. I don't know what to do. You know, and I'm, I'm, in, you know, I'm in the middle of working, you know, my full time job as a podcaster and just think like when we were kids, I never asked my parents what to do. I know some people would want to do that because you'd be put to work. Did you have that circumstance? No, we just stayed away from parents, just went and played. Yeah. If it was, if it was nice out, we were outside. If it wasn't, we were just in the rooms, you know, just doing stuff. Uh, yeah. I remember interacting with my family when maybe we'd watch a movie together. Otherwise, meals, you know, something would be cooked and you'd eat it. Yeah. Otherwise, I could be in my room for hours playing with Star Wars toys, creating different scenarios, even without a friend. Oh, yeah. Even if it was just uh, Hot Wheels, you know, pushing around the carpet or whatever. We did that for hours on end. And talk about video games we've talked about before. I mean, you could play in a game like Adventure or E.T., which, you know, I don't know how many in total hours it would take to play it, but you could just play it and play it over and over again. And it certainly didn't have the variety and, uh, you know, the graphics, etc. of these games now that kids could possibly be bored with already. Hmm. That's what you got for me, huh? <laughs> All right, well, is uh, what we got, is that 80s news then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. All right, so like uh, we said earlier, today we're going to be talking about breaking, and you'll notice I'm not saying break dancing, and more on that in just a second. But a little bit later, we'll be speaking with Turbo himself from the film Breaking and Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo, Mr. Michael Chambers. Before that, we're going to talk about breaking ourselves. I always find it fascinating, this t topic, for, for lots of reasons, but two things in particular come to mind, and one is trying to think back to how I learned about it because as we'll talk about this and how and as I hope we'll, we'll, we'll also talk to Mr. Chambers about this as well is how this type of dance is a thing that's just been handed down from generations to generation almost like uh, you know oral tradition it, it, there's not there's not wasn't a book on it you know it wasn't you know early on sir, there's not classes that you could take you know we're talking about in the in the 80s eventually there were but somehow you would discover it and then you would learn it and it would go on and on and on like that you know and then the other thing about it that's interesting to me is for folks that are really like deep into the culture we're going to talk about you know the other pillars of hip-hop at some other point you know generally it's it's considered by hip-hop heads that uh there's four you know areas that comprise hip-hop culture including the dancing is also djing emceeing and writing graffiti you know doing graffiti but we're going to focus on breaking today and like most of our shows, this is going to rely on a combination of memory and amount of research that seem reasonable relative to the show. Because <laughs> later on, we're going to talk to an expert. So this is, you know, our part. So yeah, I wanted to mention that break dancing, you know, even though I was probably guilty about guilty of it in the 1980s, break dancing is a term that's generally regarded by the folks, you know, the originators of it and the folks that are true to the culture as a somewhat of a derogatory term because it was uh, something that was coined by the media. It didn't come from within. And oftentimes it, uh, you know, was tied to the, you know, over uh, commercialization of the dancing and the exploitation of the dancers 
who, you know, you had these companies profiting ultimately off these kids, you know, that did these dance styles and, and the kids that came up with it weren't making any money. So breakdancing as a term, just a little bit of an education for folks is a, it's a bad word. If you want to talk to talk about it properly, it's just say breaking, just like the movie that Mr. Chambers was in. Uh, or you could say b-boying or b-girling, that sort of thing. Did you only, you've heard of it and probably heard of it as breakdancing. Yeah, but I've often heard you refer to it as b-boy. So I, I'm familiar with the term and I knew the media created the word uh, breakdancing. Beyond that, my knowledge of breakdancing is based on people spinning on their head on cardboard. Mm-hmm. And that Ice T and Joe Piscopo were also in Breaking. <laughs> That's as much much as I know. Don't remember Joe Piscopo. Wow, I remember Ice T, of course. I'm trying to remember. Uh, I don't remember Joe Piscopo being him. Not to say that he wasn't. And generally, we talk, we think of it as Breaking because most stories will lead you back to DJ Cool Herc, who's a DJ from the 1970s, who would DJ at these house parties, who's credited with creating the technique of taking like the most interesting part of a song, usually recur- referred to as the break. You know, be the breakdown of the song. Most of the elements fade away or are taken out. So you got your guitar, your bass line would drop out and you just have a drummer going off. You know, this was really common and still common in some songs where they have the breakdown or the bridge. I always think the breaks are the best parts of the songs. In any case, Cool Hork would take just, he would take two records that were the same. He would, when we get to that section of the song, that break, he would, when, it, when it's coming to the end on the one turntable, he would play it without, you know, seamlessly on the other turntable and would go back and forth extending this break beat. And it was during that period of time that he would encourage dancers to come out and show off their moves. Thus, many people believe uh, that uh, break, this became, uh, you know, uh, break in, as in connection with the breakbeats, became also associated with that type of dancing during those, those times. Anyway, that's mostly what folks uh, credit it uh, to be. It's a style of dancing that was uh, born out of the Bronx, New York, primarily. There's some other areas of New York City that had, uh, that it, you know, bled over to and had their own different variations and styles. But it's, it's something that predates the 1980s when we knew it and it became most popular because it was already being done in the 70s by groups and maybe even as early as the 60s, some different s- forms of it. Depending on you know where you're from, uh, you might have had a different variation of it there in, in New York City. So to make this more interesting and get you involved, so <laughs> what is your recollection as the first time you witnessed someone breaking? Uh, let me think here. It's probably going to be in uh, the movies of the 80s. There's always at least one guy on the street in one scene who's either breakdancing on the cardboard yep. or popping and locking on the sidewalk for no apparent reason. They just wanted to get it in the movie. Ah, I like how you say no apparent reason. Because in the 80s, you know, in the mid-80s and early 80s when it started bleeding out to New York City, it's what kids did on the street. So maybe that movie was just capturing a slice of life moment. Yeah, well, it's just weird, though, because it's always just one guy. Uh, yeah, I know what you, you mean. Know, yeah. If it had been a crowd or something in the movie then it would make more sense. Right. And I wonder if you're thinking of, so there were, there were a few films that in a few moments in the 1980s, I wanted to touch on that are really highlight. I think what folks probably early exposure to the scene was the very first one that comes to mind is a film that most people probably don't know. Again, unless you're into the hip hop culture, it's a film called wild style came out in 1982. I just say that to be thorough. In any case, you had a bunch of folks in there that some of them that you'd recognize fab five. Freddie was in it. He was actually one of the creators of the film. Charlie Ahern and Fab Five Freddy worked together to do it. It starred a number of different graffiti artists. It mostly focuses on stories of these graffiti artists, but it has some scenes where you see breakers at house parties, which is, again, how this form sort of, you know, where it grew out of. So that was in 82. But cut to 1983, April, the film Flashdance. Have you seen it? Yes, I've seen Flashdance. So you're right. The beginning of Flashdance 
you've got folks popping and locking and bottom rocking right on the street. Mm-hmm. This is during the credits. Jennifer Beale's character, who's with a friend of hers, happened upon this uh, guy's uh, breaking on cardboard. And you're right. You're you're wrong only in the sense that um, there's more than one, but they do take turns, you know. And then a crowd. She's just seeing her friend at first, and the crowd grows and grows. Um, so the folks that were dancing in that scene are some of the, are the second generation of breakers because they're the guys that came up in the late seventies, eighties. Again, it started a little bit earlier than that. And, and, and today are still probably the most well-known in the world, the crew, uh, the rock steady crew. And, uh, so dancing in that opening number are crazy legs, Mr. Freeze, Ken Swift, Frosty Freeze, and they do these different moves. And I think for many folks, that was the first time they'd probably seen it. They went to see a Jennifer Beals film about a welder who's also a dancer and they got to see Breakin' for the first time. Yeah. I think that I just probably just don't remember it as well as like, I think there's a guy at Ghostbusters who's doing it. Oh yeah. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. I think that might be the first time I actually noticed it. Yeah. It's probably one of those like a Times Square montage. There's a guy there popping or something on the street yeah i think so yeah and there's plenty of films throughout the 80s that have these little moments what i think is also interesting or and even funny in flash dance so if you remember the story at all it, it really is about a well a woman who's a welder who's studying dance who wants to get into this fictional school the pittsburgh conservatory of dance and in order to get in she has to audition right and of course the movie's going to culminate with this audition and she does this audition she does all these different forms of dance you know ballet and jazz and one of the styles that she just integrates into her routine is breaking. And if you watch it now, you know, cause I believe she does a windmill. She may even do a head spin. If you watch it now, and I encourage you to do it, if you don't remember this, cause it's hilarious. Uh, Miss Beals had a number of different doubles for her dance style. So she had a ballet dancer double for her, et cetera, and so on. The double for her is a guy we saw at the beginning of the film, crazy legs. <laughs> so suddenly this very, you know, uh, you know, woman with a dancer's body who's doing all this ballet moves becomes clearly a young man with a stocky nice. muscular body and a wig that looks like it's about to fall off if he windmills a little too quickly. I'll have to watch that one again. You have to watch it. As soon as it switches over, it's hilarious. And then it switches back to, you know, this uh, petite woman. It's really pretty startling. So yeah, I think that's one of the early times that folks probably remember it. And here's another one. Also in 1983, another moment that you might remember is Michael Jackson on Motown, that Motown 25 celebration does a certain move that he, that he described a certain way that uh, folks the next morning, it was all the talk. Do you remember? Yes, that'd be the moonwalk. Right, yes. So that's another mm-hmm. thing. I think that folks probably for the first time saw this dance style. Like, what is this? Michael Jackson, originally the producers were not going to let him perform Billie Jean because it was a new song and they only wanted to have their artists perform well-known songs from Motown because it was a celebration of their 25 years in business. And Michael Jackson wanted to do this new song and they said, who wants to take the phone call from Marvin Gaye on Monday morning and tell him why he wasn't allowed to do a new song when Michael was? So who took the phone call? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Apparently during the uh, rehearsal, the producers saw him performing Billie Jean and doing the dance moves and they're like, oh, right, this is special. We need to let him do this. And that's how it ultimately got in. So yeah, I think that's the only thing most people remember about that performance. But uh, Brushing up for uh, this episode, I watched some of the Breaking movie, and I noticed that uh, they were doing that in that movie. Pretty close to it, anyways. Oh, yeah. Uh, in particular, right. The one scene where Turbo is doing the routine with the broom. Yes. Yeah, and, and Michael Chambers is known for creating, specializing in, in many moves, but including the type of sliding around that, including that backslide, but sliding sideways and, and turning around while doing it, etc., and so on. Yeah, so, yeah. 
Another, I think, moment in media where folks had their first exposure was Herbie Hancock performing Rocket at the 26th Annual Grammys in February of 1984. Do you remember the song Rocket? No. You don't remember? Oh, okay. That's what that's called. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm thinking I probably should dub in the real version and and take me out of there. So yeah, so Rocket, the song itself came out in 1983, but uh, it went on on to win a MTV Music Video Award in 84, I believe. And then he performed, Herbie Hancock performed it at the Grammys. Do you remember the music video for it? Was that the one with all the uh, like weird animatronics? Yes, exactly right. They had all these um, uh, mannequins, you know, being moved around, and um, some of them were weird and disturbing, and uh, it was like these weird scenes of domestic life, but a little bit off. And some of them were just in disembodied limbs, like legs dancing without a torso. Yeah, those were created by an, an artist and inventor, you know, for the video, and then. When, they, when Herbie Hancock performed live, they had those on stage, many of those things. And what's really cool, and again, you should check this out uh, if you haven't seen it recently or don't remember it, many of the scenes from the video are being reenacted or, you know, because they've had these animatronics around, including one of the things that you might remember from the video is a mannequin sort of sitting up in a bed and then falling back down and sitting up. I think there's another mannequin smacking another mannequin. Anyway, they have these scenes there. And then when it gets towards the sort of climax of the song, it turns out these mannequins are actually dancers. And they move from where they were just repeating the same movements over and over again and start breaking right there on stage. And people freak out. (laughs) It's also kind of creepy because they've got these sort of mannequin masks on. Yeah, I I prefer the regular style they have from the 80s with all the bandanas and cool clothes i do like that style a lot yeah i could see you wearing that now you know with the um you just said you were just wearing breaking so you saw uh you know michael chambers you know turbo wearing like the little thin red thing tied around his hair or they had like the uh i think uh, ozone has the feathers and i could see you wearing one of those hats did you get to see ozone with oh, the yeah. hat? i could rock that hat that'd be cool he had like a contemporary zoot suit like a 80s take on a zoot suit mm-hmm. yeah they had some cool clothes in that movie it's a good movie the broom scene's the, the highlight for me. That's a very good one, yes. So as soon as that br- a broom challenge was going around a month or so ago in the world, before the world was upside down, I immediately thought about him. Like, he is the original broom challenge master. You know, folks were, what was it? You could stand a broom up or something like that? Mm-hmm. Anybody could do that. It's pretty easy. But watch what he does in breaking with the broom, and then, you know, he's the real master there. So yeah, so after, uh, th- that's as far as I can recall, and, and looking through my history here, Breakin' in May of 1984 was probably, you know, the first time most folks saw uh, break, Breaking featured in a film. Because you're right, in other films like Flashdance, you had these little moments, even these moments on TV. But now Breaking was about some version of the culture on the West Coast. So did you see the film when it came out or, you, or saw it after? No, I saw it on cable. Somewhere in the 80s. Yeah. So I think unlike you, because we've had this conversation before, my friends and I, we were uh, dancing on the streets. You know, we were the guys that had the car. We'd get a cardboard from a refrigerator box or something like that. The biggest piece you could find would be the best, you know. Stay away from linoleum. Linoleum is way too slippery. But you get your cardboard. We'd have it where we hung out or we would travel around the city looking for, you know, people to battle or watch other crews dance. I don't remember how we first were exposed to it. It was one of the things we just mentioned, I think. But Breakin' was definitely one of the earliest ones. And I remember going to the movie theater in our city to see it, being so excited to see, you know, this culture, this style of dancing on film for the first time when we only had these little bits in wild style, 
Flashdance, Michael Jackson, all those things we talked about. So it was really, really exciting to see it there. And immediately, you know, you want to go home and try to remember, we didn't have the benefit of having it on tape. Like, what did we see? Copying, straight out copying somebody's moves, would, you know, it's forbidden, you know, it's taboo. But mm-hmm. you had to try to imitate what you remembered in order to learn it, you know? Did, did you have a signature move that you would do? Well, yeah, maybe. I did a little bit of both stuff. So up stuff up on my feet, which was, you know, generally known as top rock, a little bit of popping and stuff like that. But I also did a lot of stuff on the floor, you know, your scrambling and your backspins and stuff like that. If I had a signature move at all, I had the benefit of, this isn't going to surprise you, if I had you guess the one sport, one of the sports I did in high school. Uh, gymnastics? Gymnastics, yes. I did gymnastics. <laughs> and so I had some benefit of some of those moves from gymnastics. And there was this one that was called a backhand extension where you roll back and oftentimes doing it out of a, a round off and you roll back and you push your body up. So as you're rolling back on the floor, you kick your leg straight up and you wind up standing back on your feet. It looks like you do a backflip. So people would, I would incorporate this into my dancing and people thought I was flipping over, but I, I really wasn't. But if I had any signature move, it was that. But there were other moves I stayed away from because I was scared to break my neck. So that would be called the flip flop. <laughs> I didn't have a name for it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, but I was, you know, my, again, parents scared me thoroughly out of doing a uh, head spin. Like, you'd, there were stories that you'd break your neck. Mm-hmm. And windmills also, I could never figure out how to do the wind. I mean, I understood conceptually how to do the windmill, but it was hard physically. And I could at best do a couple of different, you know, turns on the windmill, and then I would sort of die out. So back here in Ohio at this time, were you seeing it anywhere live on the street? No, there was not a lot of break dancing going on around our neighborhood. Wow. We might have tried it once or twice and realized it just wasn't our thing. So it's not for us. Yeah. You returned to skateboarding and BMX biking. and Yeah, bikes, skateboards, learning how to play music, stuff like that. Yeah, we had the biking. Not so much skateboarding, yeah, some people. But I mean, dancing among my friends was a big thing. And then uh, there was a film that came out later that year in June of 84, which was the other sort of you know seminal or important uh, break film. Uh, to come out in the 1980s, uh, Beat Street. So Beat Street was a you know a fictional story, but it, again, it followed kind of like Wild Style. It followed a graffiti artist. It followed a DJ. It followed these different uh, folks who represented the different pillars of uh, hip hop culture. We f- focused uh, followed a dancer in their different stories. It was mostly a drama, but um, in these movies, you had two of the legendary crews playing characters that were competing against each other. So you had Rocksteady Crew, who I've already mentioned, and another group, the New York City Breakers, which were legendary. And it was cool because they played these fictional rival gangs that would run into each other throughout the film on the streets or in the subways or at the club, and boom, all-out battle would break out. Uh, Some of the best dancing you'll see on screen, certainly again in 1984, and maybe even since. But other folks were in the in the film too, um, some of them playing themselves. Cool Herc was in there, who I mentioned, you know, was credited with creating the, the break uh, breakdown of the songs for the dancers. Two folks you would remember, Dougie Fresh plays himself. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, Dougie Fresh does beatboxing, so there's this really cool uh, moment where they do a Christmas song, and um, the, the rapper there is, um, well, the Treacherous Three plays themselves, and, and, and uh, Cool Modi is there rapping. Um, and he says for Christmas, he got, he's talking about how bad Christmas is for, for him and his friends living in the, you know, in the inner city. He says he got a, he asked for, I think he says, I asked for a, a radio. You know what I got? Dougie Fresh, you know, the kid from down the block. And Dougie Fresh sticks his head through this hole and starts beatboxing. <laughs> it's, really, nice. it's really wonderful. And then that's about it as far as, again, I guess, I guess what I think of as far as how anybody knows it. Again, it's fascinating to me how 
this is a thing that's just, again, it wasn't taught. It was just handed down. It just became part of culture and media and other people would learn and share moves and it would grow and grow. Uh, it's often credited as a thing that helped cross, you know, cultural barriers um, where we had, you know, different groups or communities throughout the city uh, coming together in this shared love of this dance. Um, early on, it's credited with bringing some of the gang violence down where folks would advocate for this as being a way of resolving, you know, static or beef between different crews instead of, you know, gang war or or actually fighting in the streets of New York City. I I guess the one last thing I'll mention in passing only because you bring it up often as a punchline is later in 1984, so we had break-in in May, Beach Street in in June, and then in December of 84, we had the sequel for break-in, break-in two. Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, you know, maybe if we have a chance to ask Michael Chambers, there's so many things I want to ask him, but if we have a chance to ask him how it is they pulled off those two films coming out in the same year, they had to film them like Lord of the Rings style at the same time. I don't remember them coming out in the same year, but according to the internet, they did. Um, But yeah, oftentimes Mm. it's regarded as a punchline, Electric Boogaloo, but um, that movie came out that year as well. And Electric Boogaloo, as you mentioned, I think, refers to a style of dancing that was uh, from the West Coast. And I I guess I should mention that everything I said was is East Coast based because I know most about the East Coast history and culture because that's where I grew up. Michael Chambers, though, our guest, is from the West Coast and part of the scene that uh, helped bring that type of their take on uh, breaking to the forefront of, of, of media and culture. And so, in a moment, we'll be right back with star of Breakin' and Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, Michael Chambers. guest today starred as Turbo in the 1984 films Breakin' and Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo. But his unique talent had been established before those seminal films, and his place in hip-hop history has been secured long since. Our guest has appeared in a number of music videos, including Shaka Khan's I Feel For You and Lionel Richie's All Night Long, with whom our guest also toured. Additionally, he was the assistant choreographer for Paula Abdul's Opposites Attract, and he was the freestyle dance double for MC Scat Cat. And while you wouldn't recognize him, he appeared as one of the robotic doppelgangers in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and as Urkelbot on Family Matters. Today, he speaks at universities to preserve the historical integrity of the dance form he helped create and popularize. For more information, you can follow him on Facebook or check out his official website, BoogalooShrimp.com. Please welcome to the show, Michael Chambers. Hey, Michael. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to talk to you. So I've been... Wow. I've been wanting, so we've, we've been doing this show for almost a year now about, uh, and it's a celebration of the 1980s, but we try to even dig deeper and prove that the 1980s was the best decade for everything. And as an uh-huh. 80s kid myself coming up and, you know, learning how to break on a piece of cardboard in my hometown of Jersey City, New Jersey, I've long been wanting to speak to an expert who can help fill in some of the blanks as far right as the history and, and, and culture. 
So you versus me, I'm out on the East Coast, you know, and so I'm more familiar with the history there. You know, a dance style started in the 70s. You know, we had folks like the Zulu Kings, Clark Kent, which was picked up by Rocksteady and folks like that, New York City Breakers. I know very little about how it was born on the West Coast, but I I love how it was like an oral tradition, you know, of sort of one generation to another. Uh, how did you first come to find out about this style of dance? Well, um, for starters, all respect to the B-Boys, the, you know, uh, Crazy Lakes, Rocksteady, New York City Breakers, Dynamic, everybody on the East Coast, Cool Herc, um, the radio stations, everybody, Studio 54, the Fun House, you know, everybody that kind of like laid the foundation to actually bring this subculture to the worldwide audiences. I, you know, I have to say that because I am from California and there's always been this little subtle thing about East coast, West coast. But when it's, when we're talking about art, I I think about, I think about what our time was and about how the foundations of the hip hop elements were built. Like we're like the new hip hop Woodstock. (laughs) Like in Woodstock, you had all these, all these wonderful artists, you know, Joan Baez, you know, Joni, you know, Joni Mitchell, all these really cool people came to one area and made history, but they all had individuality. So with hip hop, you know, we had all the Zulu nation and all the wonderful people from the East coast, the graffiti artists, you know, artists like Keith Haring, all these great people coming out of NoHo and, you know, the Brooklyn boogie down Bronx and East Harlem to, make a make a point it was like a movement right and so over here in cali before flash dance before wild style and flash dance right. hit the airwaves it was still underground so the way that i came up on freestyle dance in this whole art back in the days here in california we had uncle jam's army which you know, spawn uh, Egyptian lover, Egyptian lover, oh, Chris cool. Glove, and uh, you know a lot, a lot of these, a lot of these, a lot of these young people were listening to this electronica right. infusion. I mean, this this electro beat was coming in very strong, right. and just before at the end of the seventies, Roger Troutman and Zap and Parliament they had that real heavy funk sound. You know, boom, boom, boom. So yeah. in the eighties. The electro guys were picking up on what was happening with Africa Bimbada and the Zulu Nation. If you listen to Planet Rock oh, yeah. and if you listen to to Soul Sonic Four, that was really high electro. That that just took the Absolutely. beat and the dance the dance to another level. So I noticed that the style of dance changed to complement the music. So with me as a little kid, I was growing up and I was watching right out of the seventies, man, John Travolta came out with Saturday night fever. Everybody was trying to disco dance and had their, their bell bottoms and their, 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 their gigantic, you know, shoes looking like Gene Simmons (laughs) and out on the dance floor or their roller skates. And everybody was kind of doing the roller boogie over here, man. And I just, and, and the robot, while people were disco dancing, the robot came around the same time disco happened. So I was looking at people who were doing their best renditions of the robot. So I, I really got into that because I've always been a science fiction buff. I loved Ray Harryhausen and Jason and the Argonauts and clash of the Titan. And so I didn't know how, how that I would connect the dots from science fiction that I was viewing on television (laughs) versus the battle dance floor until I actually was thrust into actually displaying what have I learned. And the thing is, 
I noticed that when I did my rendition of the robot or pop locking, people were looking at me like, wow, that was brilliant. That was wonderful. I was like, what's the deal? They're like, "Mm, you kind of look a little bit unusual. So what they were getting at was I was forming my mastery of how I articulated and interpreted the robot of its time. I, I, while while others were dancing by me watching science fiction Mm. in my mind, I was pretty much imitating claymation and stop motion. So by the time, by the time I hit the dance floor, I did, I was imitating things that weren't real. And I became, I I gave that unreal effect. And so as I perfected my movements, then I realized, wait a minute, there's a whole nother group of people. As I made the club circuit and the school circuit, I mean, we were underage. So any, anywhere there was a Sadie Hawkins dance (laughs) or a a school dance or a house party, I would find these really cool, and unusual people doing the same kind of dance style as me. But the best thing was they were all masters at the style. So I, I, I mastered the animated robot cut, right? right? But then there was just these really cool kind of liquid people, yep. these really alien looking people doing stuff. So when I would make the rounds and I would battle other dancers, we were forming this community of masters. That's what got me really, really hooked on the dance because now it was not just a social interaction, but it was an artistic growth of a community of great masters growing together, exchanging styles and becoming greater than we ever imagined. It's fascinating how at this time, you know, late 70s, 80s, that so many folks independently, it seemed, you know, were coming to, you know, sort of the... This, this dance, you know, this freestyle independently, but then like you said, come together, you know, and, and it and creates something even and better than the, the sum of the, the parts. For folks who don't know, how would you, and, and you know, like you said, you know, Rocksteady, you know, in the 80s helped a lot of people know about, about breaking yeah. because they were on so many things. You know, you, you would later in, would appear on, in a number of videos and uh, films, of course. How would you distinguish the style of West Coast versus East Coast? Oh, it was very, very, very simple. I remember the first time I ever heard about New York dancers yeah. was uh, there was a TV show with uh, Sarah Purcell. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Featured these kids spinning on their head at New <laughs> Washington Square Park. Yep. No, Washington Square Park. And it was Crazy Lays and Ken Swift and yep. some of the really, you know, some of the really hot popular dancers on the East coast. And when they got featured us in California, were like, wow, the kids in New York are spitting on their heads. But <laughs> we were like, wait a minute. That just made us step up our game in our style because that style was very new and very fresh. So we said, okay, well, what we're going to do, we're going to try to learn that style because nobody was really teaching back then. Right. So we were over here mastering, you know, we had the lockers, Tony Basil, Shabadoo, Adolfo Quinones, yeah. you know, most of the, the lockers were on, on soul train and Saturday night live. Um, um, so the thing is, you know, they had already had some camera time over here. So, you know, we had the style of locking yeah. and then we had the style of popping and boogaloo. So the electric boogaloos were from, were from Fresno, uh, uh, California. And then pop locking became a wild underground battling phenomena where people were like popping and doing different, different styles, King Tut animation. They were doing all kinds of things. So we had our own little dance revolution coming on over here. And so what happened was the East coast 
they were inspired with the Webo, you know, the, the Puerto Rican, the, you know, the Puerto Rican community and the Brazilians had capoeira as a martial arts style. style. So the thing is with martial arts and the jinga of capoeira and, and the, the, the Afrocentric rhythms of the tropical islands from all those wonderful people who had the Latino influence and the Cubano thing going, I started seeing that the breakers and the break dancers not only incorporated gymnastic movements to show how stamina and how solid in physical condition they were, but they were executing these wonderful, these wonderful dance steps to beats. You know, looking for the perfect way to, to the Zulu Nation beast, you know, it Simon, you know, Jimmy Castor, you know, it's just because So the thing is, there was a whole nother flavor, a whole nother rhythm, you know, the whole nother one thing I love about New York, when New York came into hip hop and then that whole dance revolution, they didn't just bring in the dance steps, but New York and B boys and B girls and the MCs, they brought fashion, the gazelles, you know, the Kangos, the walk, the talk it's in the way you talk. It was a whole it was a whole revolution and a cultural bomb. California what we did, I mean, we were wearing kind of like zoot suits because Edward James almost had a movie called Zoot Suit. And so we had low riders and Chicanos with baggy pants and the big hats. You could see that reflected in the movie Breaking with Shabadoo. Yep. He had the brim and the trench coat and it's kind of the of Edward James almost, right? So we were we were we were wearing baggies and we were rocking, you know, a different look. And then in the eighties we had a new wave revolution where everybody was trying to get in shape like Richard Simmons, you know, and, uh, and Jane Fonda. So we had the leg warmers and the pastel colors. And we just kind of added to the mix our fashion from Cali. Cause we were by the ocean and we had the surfer guys and they're like, yeah, man, bust a move, dude. So, so you could really see how California's flavor was different than the East coast, but neither one of them was better than the other. Yeah. New York had their wardrobe, the big gigantic snow gear and the and you know all that stuff because that was what was happening over there in New York. But Cali, you know, we were rocking the mullet hair. So like my mullet, dude. You know, totally valley, man. You know, it's like everybody, everybody was surfer influence, man. And he's like tubular, turbo, turbo, and boza. You know, people were people were shocked because we were African Americans that had a dance style that we moved in circles with geeks and the you know the the preppies and the yuppies were like these guys are like totally cool man they're like busting ways they're busting a move on me man you know so we people didn't understand us when the movie breaking came out but later on it made all the sense in the world beat street captured the essence of what was real in new york you know the bombing on the trains the you know the the, the urban struggle and survival of people in the inner city and breaking captured the truth because a lot of the dancers, they were just dancing on Venice Beach and on the pier or in clubs until somebody said, hey, man, yep. you should package a show and, and get an agent and then make it make it on a television commercial or Broadway. So breaking held up, the storyline held up because there were two kids from the neighborhood who got with a girl who had a talent agency, which is Kelly. Mm -hmm. And the Kelly Keller character said, look, I can help you guys get to the next level. It wasn't like she was... We were a charity case. The, the, the Turbo and Ozone characters of Breaking, they weren't a charity case. They were just happy being in the neighborhood for bragging rights. But Lucinda, Kelly was showing them how we could make money and actually travel and make a career. Yeah. 
So the thing is, I think now dancers who have a career and understand you can either have bragging rights or YouTube or get signed, signed to an agent or get a manager and start, start making a living. And so those are the things that New York and California apart as far as dance styles. But I have to, I have to admit as far as working, whoever put together rock steady, and whoever put together the New York City Breakers, they set the they they raised the bar because those two crews pulling people for bragging rights in the streets and the clubs. Yeah. But somebody said, "Wait a minute! You guys don't have to be in the streets anymore. You guys are an international dance crew." And they packaged them, and they had stickers. I remember Rocksteady had stickers, and oh, yeah. they had all they had a rec- record. Hey, you, the Rocksteady crew. Yeah. That didn't just happen. That didn't just happen. Somebody said, "Look, let me let me get these kids organized and professional, and take them to the next level." The same thing happened to us over in California when we were dancing in clubs and challenging people. Somebody reached out to Adolfo Quinones, Shabadoo, Tony Basil, uh, the singer for Oh Mickey, You're So Fun. Oh, yeah. She said, you know what? You could give it away for free or you can you can make a buck and sell it, you know, in, in the real world. And sure enough, I call it like a kind of like a grooming school because we were like understudies. When I say we, most of the kids that kind of got smart and were listening to try to help themselves to go to the next level, they were understudies of Tony Basil and Adolfo Quinones. Oh who had already proven themselves in the entertainment business. And we all kind of just polished ourselves up, you know, and we said, okay, you know what? We want to join the Screen Actors Guild. We want to join Actors Federation for Television and Radio Artists, and we want to get a solid few auditions and make, you know, and make a career. And that's exactly why you've seen us featured in Shaka Khan's I Feel For You video, Lana Ritchie's All Night Long, you know, the breaking movies, and then then things after that. So, you know, I have to, I tend to be the person who would want to, stand out and and let the new generation or bloggers know there was never no east coast west coast beef in the dance community i've always i myself have always respected all those wonderful people who came you know from the streets of new york the hard streets in new york and made made a living as artists and as promoters and even dancers you know i mean that was a whole nother cultural bomb and just to see the growth the growth of freestyle today uh it's a blessing just to know that there were a group of wonderful people on the east coast that were building as we were building and i'm just for just to give you a heads up in case no one knows this (laughs) i heard i heard that that the olympics has already proposed breakdancing to be in the the 2024 olympics in like paris or europe You, you could look it up online the only reason i throw that out there is because People were trying to write off popping and breakdancing like disco. Remember they said disco's dead? Yeah, Yeah, but a lot of wonderful producers like David Guetta and these trap music and mashup people, they they realized there was some merit in disco, and we could hear some of those disco beats in some of the new music. So with... With dancing, you know, when they tried to write off breakdancing and, and pop locking, I really commend all the pioneers, the choreographers, the casting people, anybody that has debuted and vouch, right. vouch for this art form to get it to where it's at now. You know, we have World of Dance on television. We have almost every other wild spot you see. There's tons of popping or breakdancing in it. And there's a lot of, you know, television and, 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 and musicians who've used 
you know, freestyle elements, b-boying, uh, b-boy choreographers, pop choreographers in their productions. So, you know what? I, I have to commend New York and all the people who have lobbied and pioneered the art. You know, Harry Belafonte for Beat Street, Wild Style, the, you know, uh, Cool Herc, um, the late Frankie Crocker on the, you know, who used to be on the radio telling everybody, Hey, come out to this place, you know, Sugar Hill gang, <laughs> you know, all those wonderful people. So, you know, a couple of things. One, I remember when, so when breaking came out and, you know, beach street came out just like a couple months after yeah. uh, for us, you know, kids on the streets, it was starting to, I look, I grew up right across the Hudson river from Manhattan in Jersey city, New Jersey. So stuff, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. things started trickling over already, but when, when breaking came out and then beach street came out, you know, we were exposed to many more moves, uh, than we, you know, could imagine. And so, yeah. you know, although, you know, biting isn't cool, you know, you start off by taking a little something <laughs> and making it your own. Um, yeah. we thought, you know, like you're saying, there wasn't really a rival. We, we thought, you know, if you can get the style from, you know, like, you know, on your feet, you know, popping and locking from, from breaking and the power moves from beach street, we would be like unbeatable. You know, we weren't never as talented as you and Shabadoo, but so yeah, for, for the kids on the streets, you know, you know, at least that actually were dancing. I don't know that we knew of any, any rivalry, but you can put a, so talking about how they said disco was going to die and, you know, breaking was going to fade out as well. My mom, when I was yeah. a kid, told me to stop breaking because there was a time, I remember this, there was a Time Magazine article that said, yeah. kids who are breaking today are going to have arthritis when they're older. Do you have arthritis, Michael Chambers? Would you, is that too private? Well, well you know what? Well, 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 here's the deal. I just got diagnosed with oh. arthritis on my, oh, on my oh. foot. Okay. But it wasn't for breakdancing. I had several injuries over okay. a few years on the same leg and on the same foot. So I got diagnosed with arthritis on my foot, yep. but not in my body. But I have to give it up. There was a there was a girl who used to be from the Dynamic Breakers. They also had a girl group called the Dynamic Dolls. I remember that. Yeah. And there was a girl who was named Kimikaze, and Kim Kim used to. And guys on her head. I mean, they had that one breakdance where they had one person on somebody else's head, full body, and they would spin them on their head. And after years of that, you know, of another body's weight on your, on your head, she's got a very serious, serious illness where I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's multiple sclerosis or if it's something, there's something where it's like a nervous, a nerve damage thing where she's, she's totally, cannot dance anymore but she has a book out there so for me i have to drop her name and that yeah. group out because even though the times magazine i mean that that article came out we do have a fallen i mean she's like my sister in the arts so for all the for all the people who know uh you know she's on facebook and social media and i think she has a book out right now but yeah kim kim was the one that we all heard in the dance community that actually suffered the most after years of dancing and hitting the road and touring the world, she actually succumbed to an actual breakdance injury wow. with a nerve injury by doing that. But me, I have, I had things like, 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 um, injuries on my, my moonwalking foot. I would call it. And <laughs> the thing is, I just, I just got diagnosed last year with arthritis on that foot after so many injuries and stuff. So okay. the thing is, as you were saying, you know, how, some people were 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 backing away from breakdancing. There was a rumor, there was a rumor in the eighties that people that were not trained right to do the head spin that they were breaking their neck. Oh, yeah, I remember Some, that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people people were trying to dump on breakdancing, <laughs> yep. you know, for the longest time. I know one 
one great, 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 great pioneer of breakdancing, Ken Swift. Oh, yeah. Kenny, Kenneth Gabbard from, uh, uh, Kenny Gab- Gabbard, what used to be from Rock City. And the thing is, I was on tour with him. And I remember after after a couple of shows, I'm like, dude, are you all right? He goes, oh, man. He goes, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm aching all over. This guy, he overstocked up on Ben Gay, like that rubbing cream. <laughs> yeah. And after, <laughs> after the hardcore breakdancing that that guy would do, he would just kind of just go and soak in a hot tub while his pores were open. And then after, he would just like just grease down with a mm. whole bunch of that hot rub. But he'd just be like just uh, in excruciating pain. And the thing is, I mean, he I could tell he was suffering from from all the pain from hitting the floor and doing all those power moves. And so it is definitely a valid thing. And I, I certainly didn't mean to make uh, light of the injuries, except uh, to point out, uh, like you're saying, some of the rumors that, that circulated in the 1980s. And spe- yeah. speaking of your uh, moonwalking foot, is it true that you taught Michael Jackson how to moonwalk? Yeah, well, what's really interesting is I'm so glad that I'm alive enough to be able to see how many people have vouched for the details regarding that. <laughs> for the record, this is exactly what happened. Okay. When I was on tour with Lionel Richie right. on the All Night Long Tour, first of all, me, Shabadoo, and Poppin' Taco, Bruno Falcon, right. before the movie breaking, we were hired as dancers, principal dancers, for Lionel Richie's video All Night Long. Right. When we were in that video, which were very featured in the video, we went on a nine-month world tour. So we're on a world tour with a non-dancing, great worldwide renowned songwriter singer Lionel Richie doesn't dance but he writes wonderful songs we're on a nine-month world tour with this guy and people had never seen anything like us we're traveling with a hit star but we're dancing on his stage and he's not a dance act so now we're getting all that exposure and guess what it was him Michael Jackson Michael (laughs) Jackson well you you have to imitate the way that he talked because he was like really something. Yes. So look, so look, so Michael and Lionel were writing, we are the world while we're doing this tour, him and Michael were writing, we are the world. So at the end of the tour, we end up in Los Angeles, California at the American music awards where everybody was called in for that famous video. We are the world. And Michael, after all that glory, he was able to get me and Bruno Falcon, whenever his schedule permitted it, to follow up and learn in sessions this new dance we call Freestyle Poppy. So what happened was we go back before what I just told you. Soul Train debuted dancers every single week. They had the Soul Train line. Everybody was dancing on on Soul Train and people tuning in, artists or anybody could tune in and grab a move or a step that was popular and make it their own. Well, guess what? Michael Jackson was a very good dancer, a very good observation. Uh, observe, you know, he didn't have all these choreographers in his life to teach him five, six, seven, eight. The guy knew how to look at something and turn it into his own or learn something. So with all those people on Soul Train, Michael was very smart. Jeffrey Daniels, from Shalimar, right. Jeffrey Daniels had a group, and it was called Shalimar, Howard Hewitt, and Jody Watley. Well, Jeffrey Daniels wasn't the greatest singer, but he was the dancer of the group. So on one of the performance, or probably a few of them, Michael was very smart. If you look at Jeffrey Daniels, Jeffrey Daniels was tall and he had an afro. Michael was tall and he had an afro. So Michael was, Michael was smart enough to look at this guy and observe what he wanted to learn from Jeffrey, and there it is. Jeffrey came out with a song called They Call Him the Pop Along Kid. In his song, it says, Backslide with the Smoothest Ride. Michael Jackson seen 
Jeffrey Daniels and was watching him because now he had somebody that wasn't as famous as he was and wasn't even really in the front. I mean, it was all about Jody Watley and Howard in that group. But Michael seen this guy and said, well, I could do that better. And sure enough, that's exactly how Michael busted that move out on, on Motown 25 because Jeffrey was not a choreographer. He was still part of, you know, Shalomar. And the thing is, Solar Records was going under. They went bankrupt. So Michael was like, shoot, there's nobody policing this. He grabbed that step <laughs> at the right moment. And then when Billy Jean Solo came out, he pulled that out and everybody went, ah, the Michael Jackson moonwalk. <laughs> well, after the glory of the Motown 25 special, it so happened. It just, timing was perfect. I was already on tour with Lana Ritchie. And so they're working on We Are The World. Michael comes and sees me in person and sees Bruno. And there it is. Right then, ground zero, we weren't even, we were still Taft Harley. We were still green. So the thing is, we were just like, just like Jeff, Jeffrey Daniels at the time. We were kind of like, just still under the radar, but we had the goods. So Mike, M Michael was able to put two and two together, and he's brilliant. He got me in a session to learn my style, which is animation and, you know, the ticking. I have a specific style. But the good thing about me, me him and I, our relationship, he had already knew how to do the backslide because he got that from Jeffrey Daniels. Mm -hmm. What he was trying to do was make it better. So the thing <laughs> is, no, no, you know, my, my Michael's always tried to make everything better. So after Motown 25, how can I make it better? Well, the thing is, right after our session, he did make it better because I had a way of do, going backwards. And then instead of just stopping, I would go around and do like an orbit. I would do a circle. Mm -hmm. I would kind of walk in place and I could go forward. I could go sideways. I had like a whole moonwalking floating menu, right? Mm -hmm. So Michael picked that up real quick. And just right after the Motown 25, Right after our first session, if you look up Billie Jean, the live performance in 1984, mm -hmm. that's exactly what I was able to give to that wonderful man. He goes into the same Billie Jean solo that he did at Motown, but now he has a drum breakdown and he's going, do, do, do. He's going forward. He's floating in place. He's going around in a circle. Boom. And that was the beginning of what I was able to show him how to go from going backwards into a circular kind of floating thing. And then, you know, the, the next few times that his schedule was available for us to get together, he was able to get my, my, my interpretation of popping my, my styles. I labeled it liquid animation. And the thing is, if you've seen my work on Family Matters as a robot, Steve Urkel, or me as the good robot in Bill and Ted's yes. bogus journey, the thing is, whoa, uh oh, the thing is, I was already mastering that animation kind of Clash of the Titans, Jason and Argonauts mm -hmm. kind of perspective. And Michael, if you see his freestyle dancing from Captain EO to Dangerous, you can actually see him soloing and utilizing certain mm. certain hits, which that was that was the bulk of what he learned from me. The other guy, Bruno Falcon, the one that he he met at the same time as me, the Latino guy, he was in the movie Breaking. In the movie Breaking, Kelly Turbo and Ozone went against a group called Electro Rock. Mm -hmm. So the rival group, Popping Taco, Bruno Falcon, was the other guy that actually helped Michael with you know the, his popping uh, freestyle concentration. And if you see Bruno's style, 
Bruno had a very distinct thing. He had, he would roll his chest like a cobra, like a snake. He would always roll his chest. Even in the movie Breaking, he's rolling his chest. Well, Bruno came out in Captain Eel and in Smooth Criminal and had worked with Michael when I wasn't available. And Michael was able to get certain styles from Bruno. And between the two of us, he was able to make his own style of popping. So, yeah, that that's the gist of that whole story. And it is the truth. <laughs> that's amazing. So at the time this happens, are you are you flattered or you feel a little uh, obviously you're honored, flattered to see the biggest, you know, music star in the world doing dances that uh, you created. Uh, but does it feel you feel a little bit left in the shadows, too, that, you know, folks don't. No, know? no, 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 no. Not at all. Because, you know what? I understand right now. We had Bob Fosse, you had Sammy Davis Jr., you Bill, Bill Robinson, Mr. Bojangles. Uh, sure. We had a lot of top artists that didn't really make a lot of revenue like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, but they're on the books for mm-hmm. creating an art form. So for me, I realized very quickly, when you're creating and you're creating a style, whether it's rock and roll or whether it's anything, you have to have many people to vouch for the style, to bring it to a certain level. So with my style of dance, if it took a pop star as big as him to get it out to the masses, to areas that I could never imagine, then so be it. Because still to this day, you know, that man is gone, but his legacy is still out there. And so every person who's actually watched him dance, who has been influenced by him, I'm very flattered that at least I know at the end of the day, I had a little something to do with helping pioneer a whole art form. And the thing is, sometimes you need one or two people who are just great in their magnitude as far as media attention to get something launched, right? Uh, Look at rock and roll. Look at Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley was able to do certain things that the black people that he learned how to move from couldn't do. And the thing is, he was a vehicle. So for me, Michael, he always, no matter what he did, he always came back to that freestyle popping, you know, and the the whole thing. And I'm not, I'm not sugarcoating or bitter or anything. I'm just glad that we have dance still here and people still freestyling and, you know, there's still room for people to work whether they're teaching master classes or, or, or doing whatever. It's just nice to know that the dance style is still respected. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And that's a amazing attitude. Speaking of your amazing, you know, you're, you're, you're unique in the, the style you developed for foot gliding. And uh, it seemed like you were describing to me the performance we saw in Breaking with the broom. And of course, I bring that up because when we, this broom challenge started blowing up, you're the first person I thought <laughs> of. And my friends from, from, the, from Jersey started sending me videos of your, your, of your, that clip saying, this is the original, you know, broom challenge master right here. Have you been approached by Swiffer or someone at this point to help promote some broom related product with a, you know, no, you know what? And and it's, it's, it's interesting that you said that because that's exactly what I would love. I would love, you know, to do because you know what? Uh, I'm really happy that this TikTok broom dance challenge and the whole NASA broom dance challenge had allowed my, my fans who knew my work to put me back out in the forefront. And matter of fact, somebody blew my mind. They had brought up that my, my broom dance, my video yeah. of my broom sequence from 1984 got 4 million views collectively in 2020 since that broom dance challenge. So, you know what, with that kind of, with those kind of numbers, and especially at my age, I would be very honored, you know, to, to, 
to, to help launch a product, you know, with a broom company and do, and, and, and do something fun. I was just watching the television. Uh, some One of the cast members of The Karate Kid, you know, he has a commercial and MC Hammer after the, the Super Bowl, he had the uh, uh, MC Hammer had the Cheetos commercial. And it's just nice to know that, you know, when you have a brand and if there's something successful that there are companies that you could help sell a product and everybody's happy so yeah of course i would love to i would love to 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 get an offer for a a a broom company or some sort of you know some sort of company of cleaning supplies to to get that you know to make janitorial sweeping fun (laughs) uh michael i think the fact that your video got so many views uh and, and the other uh you know commercials that you mentioned there all of the work you've done throughout the 1980s is just proof of how, you know, how important, how popular, how special and unique it was. And even the B-boy culture itself, yeah. this coming together of so many things to create something different uh, is yeah. just, you know, more is further proof about uh, how different and special the 1980s were. And, and with that, I'm going to say I am thoroughly grateful for your, your time today. Oh, and thank, thank, thank you, and all the wonderful people who even uh, you know care about the the, the foundations of, of the '80s and how that that they streamline into now, you know, and yeah. All right, right. So, hey, I gave you a history that's probably got some errors in it, but to the best of my recollection and amount of research relative to the you know <laughs> doing a podcast from our bunkers. And then we had this great conversation with Mr. Chambers here, Michael Chambers Turbo from the Breaking Films. Um, and I learned a lot there about West Coast style uh, of dancing, popping, locking, uh, electric boogaloo. But have we proven anything? I think we have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Breaking might have been invented in the 70s, mm-hmm. but in the 80s, they took it to a whole nother level. And nobody's been able to do it like that since. Agreed. And we'll talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya.